There is no one to blame for my son's death except myself. But then again, he's not exactly dead. As the plane was going through the storm, I knew that something wasn't right. Maybe if I had known then that the pilot had been up three days on his own special blend of cocaine and fentanyl, I would have insisted that we wait for a more qualified flyer. Yet, as my eight-year-old son and I boarded the small prop plane, everything had seemed fine. It looked to be in stellar condition from the outside look of it, and the pilot had seemed competent enough. Seemed. Hell, maybe he was competent, just not when he hadn't slept in three days and had enough cocaine in his system for a small country. You sure we shouldn't wait out the storm? I asked him. I'm no expert, but it looks worse than what they said. He glanced over towards the ominous dark reds and blues that stood facing us from the horizon. That little thing? He had answered back with a grin. Ain't nothing. Just stick with me. I'll have the two of you there before you know what hit you. He had ruffled the hair on the top of my son Tommy's head quickly, and then he opened the small door on the passenger side of the plane. The turbulence had come in small spurts, and my son even seemed to enjoy it, at first. The beautiful view of the ocean was breathtaking, and helped dull the fear of the strange clouds above us. Look, Dad, are those sharks? I followed Tommy's eyes towards a group of shadows in the water that stood out at our two o'clock. Maybe so, I replied back from next to him. A few minutes passed, and as the two of us sat together watching the swirling colors of the storm and the shadows below us, I couldn't help but smile. Though we were just at the start of our trip together, it was turning out to be just what I'd hoped, bonding with my son, time alone. A trip to bring the two of Tug Tommy was suddenly thrown violently against the dark green interior of the plane. My heart began to race desperately as I checked him for injuries, the plane beginning to drop up and down as if the physics that had kept an old aluminum box in the sky were being threatened by some greater force than science. Tommy, damn, are you alright? A small cut could be seen just below his left ear and I grabbed a bandage from the emergency kit I had seen earlier below our seat. I'm okay, Dad. And then we dropped. Fast. As we descended like a bullet, the pilot's once cocksure and careless attitude turned to terror, and he began to lose control of not only the plane, but himself as well. Checking from instrument to instrument rapidly, there seemed to be no rhyme or reason for what he was doing. Just before we crashed into the bright blue of the Pacific, I tried to shield my son the best I could. I wish I would have tried something different. And then we hit. Boy, did we ever hit. You ever see Castaway? That's how it happens. One second everything is fine, and then the next, you're trying desperately to survive. When I came to, the cold water was already up to my neck, and my son couldn't be seen. Without a second thought, I stuck my head underneath the surface, unclipped him from where he was sitting, grabbed the only life jacket I could find, and pulled him from the wreckage. When we came up, I got us a few yards away from the plane, and tried my best to check on my son. I knew that water had gone into his lungs, and all I could think of was to hold his head above the water and used my free hand to try and get him to cough up the fluid. Nothing seemed to work, 
But as fate would have it, we wouldn't be floating long. An incredibly strong current pushed the two of us quickly under the yellowing clouds of the storm, and within a short time, I was carrying my son across a blanket of fresh white sand. I quickly performed CPR, and to my surprise and thrill, Tommy coughed up the water that had been drowning him and stared up at me. His blue eyes looked up innocently, and I began to cry. What happened, Dad? I pulled him into my arms and squeezed tighter than I ever had before. I squeezed so hard that he even coughed up what was left of the water in his lungs. That was four days ago, and there have been no signs of rescue since. Or at least that's what I've told my son. You see, there's a bigger problem than rescue. That night as we sat together around the fire I'd made, my son told me he just didn't quite feel right. I checked his forehead, which seemed colder than usual. I checked his eyes, which seemed darker than usual. And I checked his pulse. His pulse. You see, that's the thing. Tommy doesn't seem to have a pulse at all. He's talking like normal, and he is interacting much differently, but he doesn't seem to have a heartbeat. In fact, I'm quite sure of it at this point. There's more, too. His body is beginning to change. I haven't told him, but his skin is starting to turn a dark shade of blue. A corpse blue. I'm beginning to think that he really is dead. Well, at least some kind of dead. Two weeks ago, I got the call that my brother had committed suicide. It came as a complete shock to me. I know it's a cliché, but Jerry really didn't seem like the suicidal kind, if there is such a thing. Sure, he had problems just like we all do. He was in a bad car wreck in college, and he battled depression for months after he realized that surgery and rehab was only going to give him most of his mobility back, not all. But that was seven years ago. He hardly limped anymore, had a good job, and had just started dating a great girl a few months earlier. He hadn't said anything concrete, but I could tell from talking to him that they were in love, that he thought Lacey was the one. She was the one who called me first, and she sounded crushed. I drove out that night, and amid funeral arrangements and spending time with my parents and Lacey, I was so busy taking care of things that I didn't have time to stop and really let it sink in. My brother, one of my best friends since I was born, was really gone. It wasn't until I was sitting in his empty house surrounded by belongings that I had to pack up or throw away that I broke down and began to cry. I was crying so hard, so focused on my newfound grief, that I didn't hear the doorbell at first. When I did, I debated not answering it, as I rarely answered my own door. Still, Jerry had always been more friendly and outgoing, and it somehow felt wrong to not honor that and be hospitable while I was still in his last home. Wiping my face, I went to the door and opened it on an older couple. Hi there, I hope we're not interrupting. I looked at them confusedly for a moment. Um, I... Jerry's not here. 
The woman frowned. Oh, we know, honey. We heard what happened to him. The man leaned forward, as though to whisper, though when he spoke, his voice was loud and harsh in my ears. Terrible thing. Good guy. Terrible thing. The woman's face deepened as she glanced at the man and then thrust forward a covered dish. We live next door, but we didn't know him well enough to come over during the funeral and whatnot, and we've been out of town recently as well, but we did want to do something, and we saw that someone was over here, um, cleaning up, so I thought we'd bring over this casserole. She paused before adding, It's a bean casserole. My recipe. I took the offered dish numbly. This wasn't the first food offering I'd had to take in the last few days, and I admit to being relieved that this was the purpose of their visit. It meant they'd go away, satisfied they'd help in some nebulous way by giving food no one asked for or wanted. Except, they didn't go away. At least, not yet. Everything going okay? Got anyone helping you? The woman's eyes were roving past me into the shadows of Jerry's foyer. I quickly found my faint gratitude souring into annoyance. So was that it then? Nosy neighbors wanting a peek at the horror show? I shrugged. It's fine. I've got it handled. My brother was a neat guy, so it's mainly just a matter of figuring out what to keep and what to throw away. I was about to launch into the whole wrap-up speech about how I better get back to it when the man interrupted. Have you run across anything strange so far? I stared at him blankly. Um, no? What do you mean? He looked away. Oh, I don't know. They say you don't really know someone until you go through their stuff, right? Gritting my teeth, I started pushing the door shut. Look, I need to go. Thanks for the casserole and... The man blocked the door with his foot. We mean no offense, friend. Want us to come in and keep you company for a bit? I pushed against the door harder and felt the wood flex slightly, but it didn't budge. No, I wouldn't like that. Please move your foot and go on. The woman gave me a thin smile as she nudged the man in the side. Sorry to keep you. We'll let you get back to it. The man reluctantly moved his foot back, and I immediately shoved the door shut with a solid thump. Ah, screw me. What was their deal? Were they just that pushy? I jumped as my phone rang. It was the number of the detective that had worked Jerry's case. Miss Sanchez, this is Jim Truitt. How are you doing today? Swallowing, I backed away from the door and returned to the living room where I'd been packing. I'm fine. Packing stuff up. Anything I can help you with? Well, I'm closing out your brother's file and we have a few personal effects that we need to either release to you or destroy. I felt my legs growing weak so I sat down between a table and a half-full packing box. Um, you mean like his clothing and stuff? I could hear how uncomfortable Truette was over the phone. No, not his clothes. They were... Well, they were considered a biohazard due to their condition, so those are typically burned once we're done with them. But he had a wallet with various cards, a couple of photos, and $57 in cash. He also had his cell phone, and the keys I already gave you, and... Well, the note he left. He paused and then rushed forward quickly. Not that you have to take the note, or any of it. People feel different ways about that kind of thing, and we're happy to do whatever you and your family want. 
The air felt heavy around me, making it hard to move or think. I knew what the notes said. I had seen it the day after I'd arrived in town, and despite being in a plastic evidence bag, I'd been able to tell Detective Truitt that it looked like Jerry's handwriting, even if the words made no sense. I've had enough. Goodbye. Love you all, Jerry. I felt fresh tears springing up in the corner of my eyes, and I fought them back. I, well, the the wallet and stuff, yeah, but the note. I, I don't want the note. None of us want that. Okay, fair enough. I'll have the rest up front for you to pick up whenever you like. Just tell them that. Are you sure he did it? Huh? The man sounded younger when he was caught off guard and it took him a second to process what I was asking and respond. Did what? Commit suicide? Yeah, it just didn't seem like something he'd do. His voice was softer and tinged with sadness now. Look, I know why you feel that way. I, well... I've never told anyone outside of my family about this, but when my grandmother died a few years back, it was suicide too. She was 87 and had bone cancer, so I could see her reasoning even if I didn't agree with it. But there was still a part of me, and my dad too, that had trouble accepting that she'd done that to herself on purpose. I guess my point is that you never really know what other people have going on inside, and what they're capable of, and it's not your responsibility to save them from themselves. He cleared his throat. Not trying to preach at you, just want you to know that what you're feeling is natural and will pass with time. I sighed and wiped at my face again. I appreciate it. Thanks for your help. I hung up, and it was as I was leaning forward to set my phone on the floor that I caught a glimpse of white under the table next to me. My first thought was that it was warranty paperwork or something similar that the maker of the furniture had stapled to the underside of the table and that Jerry had never noticed and removed. But as I looked closer, I saw it was a small, white envelope that had been taped there. My mouth was dry as I reached for it and gave it a tug. It was well secured and it took three yanks to free the envelope without tearing it. Once I was holding it, I studied it for a moment. There was no writing on the envelope, and it looked fairly new, knew enough that most likely Jerry had put it there during the nearly three years he had lived in the house and had his furniture. Licking my lips, I gently opened the envelope. Inside was an instant camera photo and a short note. I felt my stomach lurch as I recognized Jerry's handwriting immediately. If someone finds this note, please know that if I have died or gone missing, it was not of my own free will. They keep finding ways in. I don't know why they keep coming, but I know they do things to me while I'm asleep. The door keeps popping up. I took a picture of it. They're growing angry, and I don't know what to do. Please help me if you can. Or if it's too late, please get away. Get far away. I read the note five times before turning to the photo. It was a picture of what looked like one of the walls in the dining room, and in the middle of it was a tall door of dark wood and black metal. I'd have to check, but I didn't remember any door like that in the entire house. First though, I needed to call the detective back, tell him what I'd found. 
Pushing redial, I clenched my phone hard enough to make it creak when his voicemail picked up. I left him a vague but urgent message, but after I hung up, I was unsure what to do. I could call 911 or go to the police station, but odds are they would just give me back over to Truett anyway, since he'd worked Jerry's death. And I was angry and scared, but there was no reason to think that waiting a few minutes or hours would make some huge difference to anything now. So I went over and lay down on the sofa, planning to just rest and organize my thoughts for a little while, before trying to call the detective again. Before I knew it, I was asleep, and when I woke up, night had fallen, and the house was dark, except for dim patches of light streaming in from the street lamps outside. I began to sit up when I heard a noise coming from the kitchen. It was a stealthy, furtive noise, and my first thought was a mouse or rat. Shuddering at the thought, I got up and began easing my way through the house. I knew the layout of the furniture well enough to avoid the chairs and tables, but the scattered boxes were a different matter. I stumbled on three between the sofa and the dining room. It was as I looked back up from bumping into the third that I thought I saw a quick movement in the shadows, across the dining room, and heading into the hall. I froze for a moment, and then fumbled for my phone to turn on the light. I shined the light across the far end of the dining room and the hall beyond, but I didn't see anything. I thought, and also checked the walls of the room, no door like in the picture either. Hearing blood pounding in my ears, I found the switch and flipped on the light. The light made everything feel less menacing, but I still felt dull dread as I opened the door to the kitchen and shone my light around on the floor. I hated mice and if it was a roach big enough to make that racket, I didn't want to. It wasn't a mouse, or a rat, or a roach. It was a folded piece of paper. Finding the kitchen lights, I flipped them on before bending down to pick it up. I found myself hoping it would be just an old receipt, an invoice from the Tombstone Company, or some other scrap of what remained of closing out Jerry's business. But it wasn't any of those things. It was a note, and what looked like my handwriting, signed with my name. I've had enough of everything. Goodbye. Love you all. Connie. Sarah sat across from me, wearing a tinfoil hat. She'd put effort into it, tinfoil sculpted neatly around her entire head, with a nice little bulb on the top. Can you tell me why you wear that, Sarah? I asked. Her eyes darted back and forth, as if the government, or whatever entity she was afraid of, might hear her. They'll listen to my thoughts, she finally whispered. And then... I understand, but I can assure you, it's perfectly safe to remove the tinfoil, Sarah. Really? Poor girl. Her lip was trembling, and her eyes were wide with fear. What made her so afraid? Of the government, or aliens, or whatever else she thinks is listening in on her thoughts? We'd already investigated her parents. There was no evidence of any sort of abuse. So why was this little eight-year-old girl so scared? I know you think... 
when you take off that hat, that something will listen in on your thoughts, and then that'd be a disaster, right? Because maybe the government or aliens or whatever else is listening will use that to their advantage. They'll stalk you or try to control your mind. But that won't happen, Sarah. But they'll kill me. When they hear my thoughts, they'll come in the middle of the night and... Shh. None of that is going to happen, Sarah. You're okay. No, I'm not, she said, tears brimming in her eyes. I promise you are. There's nothing to be afraid of, okay? Nothing. I leaned forward and gave her a smile. Can you try to take off the hat? No, I don't want to. Please, try, for me. I promise, nothing bad will happen. She looked around, her face growing pale. You promise? Promise, I'll even do the pinky thing. She finally broke into a smile. Our pinkies locked. Then she slowly reached up for the tinfoil. She shut her eyes tight. She yanked it off. I jumped back. My heart pounded in my chest. Dr. Taylor, are you okay? A ringing filled my ears. It gave way to whispers, talking all at once, overlapping and hissing. Some fell away, others intensified, until the words became clear. Take that knife from the cabinet. Stab her in the eye with it. Now. The voice wasn't hers. It was low, deep, rasping. The kind of voice that scrapes at your mind, shredding your sanity. Sarah, I asked, but my voice sounded so small. And then I felt my body move. I clenched my muscles, tried to stop, but nothing happened. My feet shuffled forward, towards the cabinet, towards the knife. Her eyes widened. She reached down and grabbed the tinfoil hat, pushed it back over her hair. Immediately the voices extinguished. A dull ringing throbbed in my ears. I'm so sorry, she said, bursting into tears. I didn't want you to hear it, Dr. Taylor. That's why I didn't take it off. That's why... It's okay, Sarah, I said. You're going to be okay, I promise. But I wasn't so sure that was a promise I could keep. Because now I knew. She doesn't wear the hat to keep something out. She wears it to keep that voice in. Thank you for making it this far. I hope you enjoyed the video. I just wanted to quickly let you know about a couple things I have going on. I have an Instagram where I post more personal things about who I am. It isn't just all creepy stuff. You can find me at Stories After Midnight. I also have a Twitter where I mainly retweet and like things I find interesting. The handle for that is in the description, but it is S underscore A underscore Midnight. I should really find another one because that's hard to say. If you really like what I'm doing, consider joining the Midnighters. That's my growing community, where we hang out and have fun and talk about cats. You can find a link to our Discord in the description below. We'd love to see you there. Other than that, it'd make me happier than a cat on a table full of antique glassware if you'd like the video and consider sticking around for more. We'll see you in the next one.